From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Although the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution prohibits the government from requiring a criminal defendant to pay excessive bail in order to get out of jail before trial, almost half a million people across the country are in pretrial detention. The collateral consequences of detention can affect everything from a defendant's employment status to their mental health. At the federal level, reasonable bail has been administered under the Bail Reform Act, the Pretrial Services Act, and relevant case law for about 40 years. And although reasonable bail is also a right at the state level, the use of money bail has raised significant concerns about the system's fairness in many jurisdictions. In response, several states have changed their laws to reduce the use of money bail. While that may be an improvement, it hasn't cured the problem of inequality in the system. For example, while money bail hasn't existed in the federal system for decades, federal pretrial detention rates remain stubbornly high, even though the vast majority of federal defendants pose relatively little risk of flight or danger. In our last episode of Off Paper, we talked to our guests, Chris Dozier, Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer for the District of New Jersey, and Sharice Van Oberdeen, Chief Executive Officer of the Pretrial Justice Institute, about the connection between mass detention and mass incarceration and issues surrounding the use of risk assessment tools. This time, I talked with Chris and Sharice about bail reform efforts at the state level, issues regarding jails, and the collateral consequences of pretrial detention. So stay tuned, folks. Back in a moment. I'd like to start by focusing on the bail reform trends we've been witnessing at the state level, because this really seems to be where a lot of the action is in criminal justice reform generally right now. Sharice, if you could, just give us an overview of what's been happening in the states regarding bail reform. I'm particularly interested in the different flavors of reform, the differences and similarities among what the states are doing, what seems to be going well, what's going less well, those kinds of things. Certainly, also very interested to know more about the work of PJI uh, and the work you're doing in this area, both at the policy and practice levels. Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, so I, for, for ease of kind of categorizing, I kind of just lump things into a couple of buckets. Um, so I'll first start with kind of the activity of bail reform that we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, the first is uh, litigation, um, and so uh, we've seen over the last two years in particular um, a, a turn towards litigation at the state and local level that we haven't seen in decades and, in fact, haven't really probably ever seen. Um, uh, as many know, or I hope know, there have only been really two Supreme Court cases that have dealt directly with the issue of of bond or bail, um, one in the 60s and one in the 80s. And so here we are 30 years later, uh, and we're seeing this rash of litigation. And the underpinning of the litigation, the, the argument in the litigation is, is essentially this, um, that it is a violation of equal protection under the 14th Amendment to have essentially two systems of justice, one for people who can afford to post money bond and be released, and the other for people who cannot. And so the strategy in, and I'm not an attorney, but in layman's uh, words, the strategy is uh, and has been that um, the organizations who are doing this litigation across the country are um, first attacking, first and foremost, really attacking bond schedules, um, taking municipal uh, courts, municipalities into federal court, um, or now more recently taking state court into federal court. Um, uh, 
under the premise of this violation of the 14th Amendment. The big case to watch right now is Harris County, Texas. Um, if folks haven't seen it, Judge Rosenthal's uh, opinion in the uh, preliminary injunction case um, of a couple weeks ago or, or maybe longer now, um, maybe a month or so ago, um, uh, upheld this notion that people should not be detained simply due to an inability to be able to pay. Um, in another week or so, uh, we'll see that case have another hearing in um, in federal court, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to the outcome of that case as well, um, the furtherance of that case. So, so litigation is a strategy, and and it's focused almost entirely on one particular element, which is ability to pay. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Um, the other bucket is another bucket is legislation. So we're seeing in states across the country folks trying to address um, the practice of local county jail pretrial justice practices, local court practices um, at the state level. Um, as with the federal system in every state in the nation, there are a set of statutes that govern kind of how far. Uh, local jurisdictions can implement legal and evidence-based practice um, before they bump up against something in their state statute or in their state constitution. And I'll highlight two things. Uh, one is that many states are what we call right-to-bail states, and so they have constitutions that include um, a provision, a right-to-bail in almost everything except uh, capital offenses and treason. And what that means in practicality is that in many states, you cannot uh, detain someone pending trial uh, unless they've been charged with a capital offense um, or some other number of delineated offenses that have been you know, put in statute over the years. Um, so it's not a dangerousness assessment. It's not, not, it, it's not moving in the direction of assessment uh, instead of charge-based detention. Um, and so the, the only recourse courts have is to set a money bond high enough that they think a defendant would not be able to make it. And we know that that is actually a not legal way of uh, causing detention, and it, that it violates um, essentially uh, the premise in Salerno that folks are entitled to a preventive detention hearing. So we're seeing a lot of legislative activity across the country, people trying to improve their statutes. Uh, sometimes they need to do a constitutional amendment in order to trigger those legislative activities. Sometimes they can just work within the existing uh, constitution and push reform through legislation. Um, there's a danger, uh, a little bit of a danger we're seeing in legislation uh, across the country. Um, one is that Sometimes the legislation itself gets kind of so watered down through the compromise process or through the influence of the insurance industry or the bail bonding industry across the nation that you essentially end up with a piece of legislation that has um, uh, little to no impact. That may be the best of the cases. Uh, sometimes um, uh, we're worried that they're actually going to result in uh, more detention than we're seeing today. Um, so you do have to really be cautious about the way legislation gets um, kind of walked through these processes. Um, so legislation. So litigation, legislation, um, we are still seeing uh, some pretty um, good outcomes in terms of legislation causing hearings and dialogue in states where they may not have um, ever had an opportunity to raise these issues among voters. Um, so that's sort of a, a good byproduct of the legislative process. 
We're also seeing some federal legislation, mostly just in terms of um, providing a grant program to states who want to move in the direction of legal and evidence-based practice, um, but mostly the legislative activity is happening at the state level. So litigation, legislation. The next bucket I'll talk about is kind of court rules. So in many states, you see the statutes are either um, sort of kind of pretty good, and if courts were actually following kind of this hierarchy of consideration where money is the the last thing that should be considered, if courts were actually just doing um, what the statute uh, allowed for, you might see better outcomes um, associated with reduced pretrial, unnecessary pretrial detention. And so we've, we've seen a move as of late of chief judges across the country um, uh, really taking a leadership role, having, you know, calling, putting together task forces or commissions that study the issue, or issuing, going so far as to issue court rules um, that direct state courts, uh, the state court in uh, implementing better practices. Um, we're seeing uh, kind of an uneven um, implementation of that. I think to issue a court rule without the requisite uh, judicial training uh, and investment, long, long-term investment in judicial education uh, will often result in, in little or uneven change across the state. So we're, we're hopeful that um, as courts continue to take a leadership role across the country, that it comes commiserate with judicial education about both the law and the science. Um, uh, and as Chris mentioned at the top of this uh, segment, um, you know, research showing that you get better outcomes when um, you, uh, you know, get as many folks out of jail pretrial who are, who are manageable in the community. Um, you'll have better case outcomes, and you'll also have better long-term outcomes. And we think if we could implement bail reform across the country, that in a matter of time you will see reduced recidivism um, due to not destabilizing people who have kind of factors that keep them connected to employment and housing and family. And then the last bucket I'll mention is sort of community engagement. So we're seeing kind of uh, more so than any time folks have attempted bail reform in the last 40 or 50 years, we're seeing, uh, in addition to, um, for the first time, real engagement among the judiciary across the country, which is highly positive, we're seeing incredible community engagement. So these are things, um, everything from kind of community bail funds, which are not new but have been part of reform efforts at different times in our history, um, but really uh, increased awareness uh, and engagement in this movement of criminal justice reform uh, that's being driven by communities. Um, and so everything from um, uh, Black Lives Matter to um, bail funds, as I mentioned, to really getting involved in kind of increasing transparency um, of decision-making at system actors all across all levels, um, we're seeing... Uh, more engagement than we ever have before. I think that's an incredibly positive trend and um, is uh, can really counterbalance a lot of the fear-mongering that's being done by folks kind of in support of the status quo money bond system. Um, so community engagement is an important strategy, um, and there's sort of no one way to do it, but there's an important component to system actors really engaging at the, at the very grassroots level, uh, communities who represent um, either victims um, or uh, reentry or other kinds of, um, you know, sort of community groups that care about issues of community health and vitality. 
That is an extraordinarily helpful summary um, in terms of thinking about, you know, um, how we should be thinking about bail reform that's going on across the country. I love those. Uh, I counted four buckets, litigation, yep. legislation, court rules, and community engagement. I, I just think that's an extraordinarily helpful way of, of categorizing all that's going on because there is so much going on. And Chris, because you're from New Jersey and because you're involved in pretrial issues at the national level, I have to ask you first about how things seem to be going in New Jersey in terms of the recent state reforms to significantly reduce the use of money bail. And then certainly very interested to hear your views about bail reform nationally and where you think it's going. Uh, Yes. So our New Jersey state bail reform has really been a huge effort. And... um, All eyes of the country have been on New Jersey. Prior to um, this year, New Jersey operated on a cash bail system, a bail schedule to set bail. And um, there has been, for some time, some grassroots um, efforts and grumbling about um, the need for reform. Many of our former federal prosecutors went over to our state government, like our governor, like our chief justice, many of our judges, prosecutors, attorneys general. And when they got there, they realized that the state law did not afford them the authority and the flexibility to do bail the way the federal law had and the way that they needed to. Um, so several things have taken place in recent years. Um, There were some jail overcrowding cases. Um, A study was commissioned by the Drug Policy Alliance with Dr. Marie Van Ostrin, and a report was published around 2013 or so that demonstrated that a lot of low-risk cases were languishing in prison, and most of them were pretrial, and many of them on very low amounts of cash bail, while some dangerous and violent cases were posting out with no monitoring whatsoever because they had resources. Uh, So that report really um, reflected that our state needed to move from a resource-based system to a risk-based system. And our Chief Justice established a reform committee with all stakeholders from all branches of government in the state. Uh, Our governor was on board, and his response to violent crime was supportive of a constitutional amendment to our, uh, for preventative detention. So in November 2014, it was on our ballot. Uh, The voters uh, voted it in, so preventive detention was incorporated into our bail laws. Pretrial services was established. Prior to then, there was no pretrial services. And a risk assessment was required for the practice. Uh, It began this year, January of 2017. And our New Jersey Administrative Office of the Court has been implementing it since. Um, We've seen a 30-plus percent reduction in the jail population since it started. So that is phenomenal. Uh, We are waiting for more data in terms of outcomes, whether the the failure to appear rate, the uh, recidivism rate. Um, But by all accounts, 
it is going well. Now, that doesn't mean it's not without its challenges. It certainly is. But I think what has made it successful is, number one, all the branches got on board. They collaborated. Our uh, leaders in state government came together, had a vision, and did all the outreach they needed to. Um, Number two, our administrative office really did a ton of outreach all over the country to other jurisdictions that have gone through reform so they could learn from their lessons. And um, they continue to, to, to do outreach to the federal system, to the state and local systems to get support. So there really has been a groundswell of support. It's not without its challenges, of course. Um, the, some of these cases are working their way through our legal system, um, but uh, it, is, it is certainly um, a massive reform that, by all accounts, um, has created a system that works much more effectively and brings more justice to our system. Um, very little, if any, um, money bond has been used. so. Um, so we are happy what we're hearing in these early stages. So it sounds like, um, uh, Chris, that, that, that the change has really been quite stark. Uh, this is, as I think you said, this is the first year that the reform has been implemented. Uh, and it, it sounds to me, I mean, I think you said a 30% reduction in the jail population. That's pretty extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> for a, a system that's only been implemented uh, this current year. It is extraordinary, and it is a huge culture change. And I think, um, you know, the, the ongoing work, um, working with some of the, the communities that I think um, we hope to have a better understanding of what's really working out there. Uh, at our recent NAPSA conference, we heard from the head of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections uh, a person who was a, a, a warden and who worked in jail saying that we need to divert people back into the community because there are better outcomes by doing that and partnering with services in the community. They've established adjustment, a justice reinvestment initiative. So I think doing that type of outreach with our law enforcement community, with um, some of the uh, you know other stakeholders, uh, so they have a better understanding of, of what is working is, is what it takes. And that's what they're doing. So, yeah, it is extraordinary. And, and I take it, um, and this is important for us to clarify, that with that 30 percent reduction in, in the jail population, uh, there has not been observed a concurrent increase uh, in terms of crime or the risk of danger to the community or that kind of thing. Is that is that accurate? So that is what... The, the second part of their data analysis and um, evaluation will entail, and they hope to have um, some good data on that by the end of the year. I'll say anecdotally, I'm hearing very good things. The other concern was the, the really the concern that there was going to be a huge amount of detention, and, and I, that hasn't happened. I think because there was such a focus on that in educating our courts and our stakeholders that um, that, that was a, a, a pleasant surprise that came out of it, that there was not a lot of uh, knee-jerk reaction to using preventive detention because they had it available to them. 
So hopefully we'll have more of those outcomes to speak to um, toward the end of the year. Um, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it. So last, I I have to ask you both about jails and the collateral consequences of detention. Um, In the federal system, some districts have a federal detention center where some services are offered, but some don't, uh, and they have to resort to to local jails to house federal detainees. Uh, It's well known that local jails often provide no services or inadequate services. Uh, We've heard the horror stories, for example, about defendants dying in jail while in pretrial detention. We all know about the notorious Rikers Island in New York City, and the state of New York uh, has decided to close that facility. So, Sharice, what do you see happening in jails um, that most concerns you? Uh, And on the other hand, are there any developments occurring with the jails that are positive uh, and give you some hope for further improvement? Um. Well, I mean, there's a lot <laughs> in jails that concern me. Um, uh, I, I, so one of the other kind of projects I'll mention um, that, that I think will be providing a lot of good um, research over the coming years um, is the MacArthur Foundation Safety and Justice Challenge. So while Chris referenced kind of this 30% reduction in jail population in New Jersey, which I think the most astounding thing about that is um, that it isn't a single jurisdiction that that is happening in, but that is an entire state court system, um, which is really um, unbelievable in terms of being able to have invested the time and resources it took to to educate those stakeholders uh, over a course of two years prior to implementation. the uh, the 30% reduction in jail population, um, which is you know obviously predominantly people who are are pretrial defendants who shouldn't be in there in the first place, um, we've seen that in jurisdictions um, like Allegheny County or Lucas County, um, again which happens to be where Judge Carr is located, Santa Clara County, places in Kentucky, um, Denver, um, and these are. Um, uh, some of these jurisdictions are involved in um, this was happening prior to their engagement, but many of these jurisdictions are also involved in this sort of large scale project to think about the uh, to change the way we think about and use jails in this country um, and I think MacArthur uh, in its examination of kind of what was the criminal justice issue that they adult criminal justice issue they wanted to turn their attention to researched lots of areas in which they could have an impact on reducing mass incarceration and settled on uh, a focus, a laser focus on jails um, for a number of reasons, uh, including that that's where the vast majority of uh, mass incarceration is happening. More people will serve time in a pretrial detention status um, than will serve time uh, upon conviction. Only about 6% of defendants who are arrested uh, at the local level will ever go on to state prison. So it's a huge population, and most of that detention is happening pre-trial. So let's think about the the local jail. Local jails are um, sort of had always been meant as uh, temporary holding facilities. I mean, in in our nation's history, uh, you went to jail pre-trial um, as a as a a prelude to after conviction going on to state prison. For a variety of reasons, we've seen an expansion of the use of the local jail, uh, not just as uh, folks are serving sentences there and now serving longer sentences. So in California, after realignment, you see local jails housing people 
um, for years and years and years in facilities that were never meant to provide uh, 10 or 15 year uh, housing options. It's a it's a difficult place then to get services. Um, it is uh, it's an inhospitable place to detox. Uh, it is uh, an almost impossible environment in which to receive mental health treatment, and yet that's what we're asking of local jails. So all that said, uh, I think that um, it is even more imperative that only the people who really cannot be managed in any other way, who cannot be held accountable in any other way except to be in a secure jail, um, should be in there. And I do think that um, the goal of a, of a project like the MacArthur Foundation project, but, but also other efforts um, being done by funders across the country, is attempting to um, reduce the collateral consequence that people are experiencing, uh, especially if, this is the last thing I'll say, so especially if, if I spend six weeks in jail pre-trial and then upon conviction, I'm sentenced to a couple of years of probation, what you will do with me as a system in those first few months after I get out of jail in my probation department with my probation officer is you will try to connect me uh, to employment, you will try to help me get my housing restabilized, and you will focus on some of the sort of contextual parts of my life, uh, family connections and the like, all things that got disrupted when I was incarcerated pre-trial, potentially unnecessarily. Um, so I think we have an opportunity to um, really avoid the collection of those collateral consequences that we then spend so much time trying to mitigate when, when someone is ultimately released back in the community. Chris, some final thoughts uh, from you uh, on this subject of jails and, 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 and collateral consequences and uh, sort of uh, drilling down on some of the things that Sharice has mentioned? Yes. Um, so I do see a trend in our federal system for more recognition of the collateral consequences of mass incarceration and the impact of mass detention upon mass incarceration. And I point to a couple of things that have really um, created the focus on it. Uh, one would be the, the, the Booker case and in a post-Booker world in our federal judiciary where um, the judges are no longer bound by guidelines, but the guidelines are advisory and they have more flexibility uh, to look at things like pretrial adjustment and personal circumstances of a defendant standing before them. Um, coupled with the Department of Justice Smart on Crime um, initiative, which encouraged prosecutors to have less focus on incarceration and charging the, the maximum and encouraging diversion um, and, 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 and the reentry effort as well. I believe that really helped stakeholders see the challenges that um, offenders coming back into the community were facing with all those consequences Sharice mentioned, having no job, no benefits, no housing, maybe lost their family support, mental health uh, stability may have been impacted, uh, their, their children um, not having their parents and what that means to future justice involvement. I think our, our, our um, Department of Justice and, and the other stakeholders really 
came to appreciate through reentry all those issues. And those of us in pretrial started raising the question of if, if these interventions are good for them post-conviction, why isn't it good for them earlier in the process? And as a result, we've seen the focus in federal pretrial expand from alternatives to detention to really helping impact on on incarceration as well. Uh, we've seen a uh, proliferation of uh, front-end diversion and problem-solving courts uh, come up in recent years. There's a lot of support for these courts. Um, we see as a result of the dialogue that this has created, more judges and stakeholders being open-minded to um, more variances at sentencing, um, less incarceration, maybe um, no incarceration, um, because of those personal circumstances and those challenges, and, and a recognition that our ability to manage those challenges in the community is, has really improved and our outcomes are really good. So um, there's been a lot more focus on those issues. Uh, we do need some research to help understand um, the, the benefits and certainly cost benefit is, is a, a concern. And so we see many of these uh, districts working with the FJC and the administrative office and other um, agencies out there to do some research. Um, the chiefs, 20 plus chiefs have engaged in the chief's research group. Um, my district has engaged with John Jay and, and uh, five other pretrial offices to try to do some um, descriptive analysis and hopefully have some informative data about these specialty problem-solving courts that are going on and, and, and therefore be, be able to better inform policy and practice. Um, so that, that's really been the trend that we're seeing and I, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Chris and Sharice, I want to thank you both very much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Chris Dozier is the Chief U.S. Pretrial Services Officer for the District of New Jersey, and Sharice Fano-Berdeen is CEO of the Pretrial Justice Institute based in Rockville, Maryland. Off Paper is produced by Paul Vamves. The program is directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.